Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, The very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you, that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done and you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. May God add his blessing to that reading of his own word. Luke is an evangelical gospel. Of course, all of the gospels are evangelical in the sense that they contain the gospel, are concerned with the gospel. But Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is particularly interested in the, the workings of the going forth of the gospel, work, uh, concerned about the mission to the Gentiles, concerned about the Great Commission. Of course, we know it is part of a two-part work, the other part being the Acts of the Apostles. And so we have foretaste of what is soon to be happening in the Acts as the, the mission of the church is given and the apostles go out into the world. We have foretaste and foreshadowings of that in the Gospel of Luke. And one of them, of course, was the sending of the Twelve in chapter 9, which is starting to seem like a while ago, the beginning of chapter 9. But we have another one here in chapter 10, the sending of the Seventy. We have the sense of building of this work from the very small foretaste and prototype to something larger and eventually something that covers the whole earth. Well, in Luke 10:1, all these after these things, the Lord appointed seventy others, also referring to that previous sending of the twelve, meaning the also. And of course, you'd imagine some of the material is very similar to what we already saw in chapter nine. Generally speaking, I take that to mean if the Lord repeats that in His Word, then we ought to hear it more than once. And so, of course, some of that will be said as we go through this. But the the thing that I want to Um, focus on this morning is the agricultural comparison that is being made here that this work is a harvest that 
that agricultural comparison is something that is just throughout the whole word of God. We know that from very early days, God called his people in the Old Testament, a likened it to a vineyard. And we know that in John, we went through there, and that, uh, that Christ is the vine and we are the branches, and that the, the father is the husbandman, is the one who takes care of this vine. And we see also that the mission out into the whole world, it is likened to a harvest. And the thing that we find here in Luke 10 is that God says he is the Lord of the harvest. And that's what I want us to think about. That's the title of our sermon this morning, that he is the Lord of the harvest. Now that tells us many things. It certainly tells us about the nature of the work of evangelism. As he explains this harvest, it says that the workers are few, for instance. It tells us that some of us are going to be appointed especially to do the main work, but others are going to be appointed to do all the support of that and to do other parts of the work. But mainly, it tells us the most important thing that we can do is to pray. The thing you do in light of all these things is to pray for it. And I would say also, and the thing really... We always are looking to know more about God, right? That's, that's the point of our reading of the word of God is we need to know more about him. The Lord of the harvest, that tells us something important about God. I want us to think about all these, these things. So the Lord of the harvest and uh, five points this morning. There is a harvest on. God is Lord of the harvest. Third, the harvest is great. Fourth, but the workers are few. Fifth, therefore pray. There is a harvest on. Second, God is the Lord of the harvest. The harvest is great. Fourth, but the workers are few. And last, therefore pray. Well, first we read in verse 10, After these things the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Just a little preliminary note on verse 1, that they are sent before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And so when, he, when they went, they went with a very self-conscious understanding that they were going as messengers of the Lord and that he himself was soon enough to be behind them and was going. So they were going to prepare the way. They were going in order that they might know something about it. So it wouldn't catch them unawares. Knowing that the Lord was soon enough to be meeting up with them. They would be seeing the Lord himself soon. And they were going to prepare that. And that's no different to us today. We are told that Christ is coming again soon and that every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him, the, Lord, the word of God says. And that we know when we speak to people, the people that we speak to, we've got to self-consciously keep in mind, they're going to see Christ soon enough. We don't know exactly when, but it's soon. And we come and we prepare in order that it might not catch them unawares, that it might not be under the wrong circumstances as those who have rejected the word <laughs> but rather preparing them to gladly receive their king. But anyhow, the main point here is in verse 2. This is the point of, of this, this first heading. He said to them, the harvest. There is a harvest on. We are speaking fundamentally of a harvest. Now, 
at the microscopic level, I understand that there's work of, of uh, tilling and there's sowing going on. We know that Mark 4 really gives us all of those elements. The kingdom of God, he's explaining what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow and he himself does not know how. The earth yields crop by itself, the blade, the head, and after that the full grain of the head. And when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So that's not to say that there's not no work left to be done of sowing, that there's no work left to be done of this being built up into ripe grain, of course. But what we're saying is, in the grand scheme of things, it's a harvest. In the grand scheme of things, where are we in, that, in God's great timeline? What, where is the clock pointing to? If you can imagine a clock of all of, of cosmic time, uh, from the very beginning to the very end, if you, the 12 o'clock position has creation, and it also has the end of the world on it. And what's at the, the 3 o'clock position? Well, the flood. And after that, it, there's Noah and Abraham, and then and the 6 o'clock position, there's the exodus. And then you have Moses and David, and what's at the nine o'clock position? Well, Christ, and particularly the resurrection of Christ. And, and now we have the gospel, and this is the gospel time, and we don't know exactly where we are between the nine o'clock and twelve o'clock, but that's where we are. We're somewhere right there. And, and what is going on now is harvest time. All the rest of that preparation has been done. And those stages have, previous times have been completed and we are as in the, the New Testament says in the last days. Hebrews 1 says God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers has in these last days spoken to us by his son. It's the last days. There's nothing now left. No new appearance that is to be anticipated. No new word from God that we are waiting upon. The last word has been spoken. It is here in this word There's none greater than Christ to be expected. All we are waiting now is for the return and the end of the world. In terms of that agricultural metaphor, all of that tilling and all that fertilization and all that that sowing of seed and all that nurturing has been done and now it is time for the harvest. And what does that mean for us? Well, you know, they used to say there's a war on in reference to sacrifice, in reference to deprivation, in, in reference to anything that was some sort of a departure from what would ordinarily be happening. You didn't ordinarily carry a gas mask. You didn't ordinarily go into these bunkers. You didn't ordinarily send your children off to somewhere safe, apart from London or something like that. And it's, there's a war on. There's a war on. Likewise, there's a harvest on. There's a harvest on. In harvest time, you do things differently. In harvest time, your priorities are shaped by the reality that this harvest is going on. And there are opportunities that must be seized, lest any be lost. Well, that was our first point. There is a harvest on. We cannot forget that. And secondly, we need to know that God is the Lord of the harvest. In verse 2, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest. It's almost mentioned on the by. As if we all knew that there was a Lord of the harvest and that God was a Lord of the harvest. But there's something new to us, really. I mentioned the importance of God's names and titles many times because they inform us our worship. How, how are we supposed to worship? 
Well, it's not just merely because we have music that we worship. We worship because we have some aspect of the holy God in front of us and that we bow down in, in our minds, in our hearts. We bow down before what is great and wondrous and beautiful. And that is why we have to have the, the names and the titles and the attributes of God's at our hand that we might be able to see what God is in order to worship him. And he has just revealed something new about himself in order that we might worship him. He is the God of the harvest every, each and every time that we see something of this harvest. He alone receives the glory for it. He is the Lord of the harvest in that sense. And another thing, they form the basis of our prayers. Because apart from some promise of God, apart from some uh, word that we have from Him, we don't have a good cause to pray. But in having this title and having this name, He is the Lord of the harvest, we're reminded that, that we can pray to that one. Now, anyhow, this name, by the way, tells us something about God in some deeper sense. He is Lord. He's Lord of the harvest. But he's, he is just one of the fundamental things about God is that he is the Lord. And so, therefore, he has authority over all things. But he is Lord specifically of the harvest. It tells us that he is not just Lord in some general sense, but he is Lord of the harvest. He is a kind of Lord that would grow things. He's a kind of one that would expect to see something from the things that he grows. And it also tells him about it tells us about what he's doing. What is God doing right now? What is he doing right now? He's not creating, is he? He has already created the, the world, and that is a created is a finished work. We look back at it. He looked back at it and he said, It's all very good. It's a finished work. He's, he's not preparing the way for Christ. He did that for many years in, in the, the, the ceremonial law, for instance, and in the prophets. He's not preparing the way. He's not right now raising Christ from the dead. That was his work at some point, was to raise Christ from the dead. But that's not his work. He's not doing that. That's a completed work. Christ is, is, is sitting at the right hand of the Father on high. What is he doing right now? He is bringing in the harvest. That is what he's doing. He is supervising the work of the harvest. That is his great work at this time. That's what he's doing. And I think that the fact that he is Lord of the harvest, it tells us about the ownership of this harvest. It tells us it is his harvest fundamentally. These are his fields. It is his tilling, his sowing, and it shall be his harvest. And everything that comes from it is his. He's the Lord of this harvest. It's important for us to keep that in mind too. It's not that we don't have any sense of ownership over it. The Lord is very gracious in that he gives us part and parcel with it, both in the work and in the fruit that comes from it and in the rewards that come from it and the honor and so forth that comes from it, not the glory, that's all his. We understand that. But God fundamentally is the owner of this harvest. You look at this field, whose field is it? Reminds you of the book of Ruth, right? Whose field is it? Whose harvest is it? That's exactly what, what he was doing at that time. He was the Lord of that harvest. Well, God is the Lord of the great harvest. And of course, it tells you about the control over this harvest. If God is indeed the Lord of the harvest, then he is in control of the whole process by which his fields are being harvested. 
He gets to direct us how he wants it to happen. He gets to tell us who goes where. He gets to tell us how it's going to be done. It's not up to us. There actually is someone's in charge here. There is a Lord of this harvest. It's not an autonomous harvest. It's not a self-serve harvest set up in order that people can pick their own in their own manner at whatever time they wish. God himself knows the way he wants this done and he is going to tell his church he is a Lord of the harvest and he will receive all the glory for it. Well, thirdly, the harvest is great. And he said to them, the harvest truly is great. That's following on, I think, from the first point that we should expect that if the triune God of the universe ever did have a harvest, then it would be a good one. Does that make sense? We found that he is Lord of the harvest that is one of his, that displays something about the truth of God, of who he is, and you you should rightly think, you know, if God ever did have, it's not necessary that he did. If God ever did have a creation, it would be a marvelous, it would be a wonderful, it would be a glorious creation. And if God ever did have a harvest, you can be absolutely certain, it would be a marvelous, great harvest. It would be a good one. I know an industrious and experienced farmer, and he has great resources at his hands. Everything is first rate. And I'm never surprised when he once again, yet again, brings in some great harvest. And the the combines are going this way and that, and they they can barely keep up with the moving of these gigantic containers of wheat and other grain. And there's gigantic trucks coming in day and night to take all this away. I'm not surprised about it anymore because I know this farmer. It's going to happen. Let me tell you something. If God ever had a harvest, our God, the true God, if he ever had a harvest, it would be great. It really would be. Now, it would be a harvest worthy of an infinite God. Now, so I say that because it's great in two senses. It's great in number. And, and really, that's what's being emphasized here. That's what's being emphasized in the text. For all you Greek scholars out there, it is polus rather than megas. And so the sense is in the multiplicity, in the sense of the, the numerical greatness of it. But even if you didn't know that, it should be clear enough for you because that's the reason stated for why we need more workers because there's so much to harvest. It's not just that it's great in its quality, it's in its quantity. It's everywhere. There's so much of it. We need more workers for this great and numerous big harvest. Now, again, that might not seem to be our experience at the time. Maybe in God's providence we happened to be living in a place where the ground, unfortunately, has been poisoned by those who have gone before us, those who have incurred the judgment of God in, re- in rejecting the word of God. And therefore, the harvest work seems a little bit slower here. The harvest doesn't seem as great. But I can tell you that's not the universal situation. That's not the way it fundamentally is. Fundamentally, its main character is that it is a big harvest. And we know in Revelation 7, 9, certainly when we see the completed work, Behold, I looked, behold, a great multitude, which no one could number. Not just that I I tried to number and I didn't have enough time, but no one could possibly number the people that were there. Of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. It is a great harvest. And sometimes we can so emphasize 
the idea of quality over quantity, that we forget it is indeed a great harvest. God, who is infinite, would surely have a harvest worthy of him. It is not enough that Christ be Lord of some small little bit of the world, but rather that he bring in to himself those of every tribe and tongue, and a great number of them to boot. But, of course, we can also say it will be great in quality. Of course that. You know, sadly, of the harvest I spoke of, um, we, we uh, ask, and this generous farmer actually gave us uh, a lot of that wheat in order to make uh, bread. The only problem was that it's not quite of the highest standard of wheat. Who would have guessed? But it's, uh, it's biscuit-grade wheat, and you can't really make bread, or at least good bread, out of it. It won't rise. It's, it's kind of middle-of-the-road quality. The wonderful thing about this harvest is not only is it enormous in its extent, in its number, it is also marvelous and wonderful in its quality. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this, but the harvest, of course, is the souls of men, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Christ, the bride of Christ, even. Something that I've been thinking about a great deal. We think about the church as the bride of Christ. And this bride is going to be beautiful. This bride is going to be perfect. She, every, every, just about every Sunday morning I give the benediction from, from Jude. And it's a, a bride without spot or wrinkle, without any imperfection whatsoever. It is a flawless, going to be in the end, a perfect and flawless harvest. It's beyond our imagination to think of it. Let us not forget that the harvest is great. That's what it is described as. But fourthly, the workers are few. Yes, the harvest is great, but unfortunately, the workers are few. It says the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Those laborers, those workers, that's what it says. The workers, those who are doing this work, are bringing in the harvest. They're not the Lord of the harvest. That is, God himself, he is the Lord of the harvest. He's directing their way, but he has these workers. And those who are actually doing of the work, they are, it says, by the way, um, this same word that we find in Matthew 10, 10, um, a, a very parallel passage, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. That's the way that we're thinking of these people. They are workers, these laborers. But this, these ones, they're few. In what sense are they few? You mean in an absolute sense there's only a handful of them? No, I, I don't really think so. I think that it's in a relative sense. Now, in, in the whole scheme, we know that there are relatively few true servants of God. Remember, and certainly that's in the case in sometimes more than others. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah said to the people, I am left, I alone am left as a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450. And I think so many times in the history of the church, we can look around and say, there are 450 prophets of Baal compared to for every one true prophet of the Lord. Maybe that's the case. There's a few maybe in that sense. But I think mainly it is relative to the amount of the harvest. Relative to how many people are to be harvested, there are just not as many as we like. They're not equal to the task before them. And for that reason, for that reason then, we go to our fifth point, which is therefore pray. These people... 
There may be, in fact, if you gathered all those, those workers into one place, you might say, actually, there's a lot of them. But compared to the size of the harvest, it has nothing. There are a few of them. And you don't see how that work is ever going to be done. And the, therefore, the response of that is that we ought to pray. And I put that here as a doctrinal point. I, I was just going to have it as part of the application section, but no, I thought, no, this needs to be part of the actual teaching of this passage, that this is something in such a situation, the thing to do is pray. It is not a sideshow. It is not an afterthought. It's not that there's a show going on. And as an auxiliary to that, every once in a while, as a sideshow, we also pray. No, it is a necessary, it is an integral part. It is an integral means to this harvest. That is how it's going to happen. When Jesus looks and he sees a problem. Problem. What's the problem? The workers are few. What's the solution? The immediate solution doesn't even have to do with, well, then go. More of you go. It doesn't even begin with that. It rather begins with pray. Therefore pray. Not therefore go. Therefore pray. Not therefore spend. That needs to happen too. But therefore pray is what happens first of all. Now, why is that? I don't have all the answers. But here are some thoughts. I think that God likes to hear his people ask for things. As a father, I like to hear my children ask for things. It's amazing to me sometimes that they don't ask for more. I don't think that they've begun to explore the limits of what they could ask for. They don't, they, they, they receive not because they ask not sometimes. But aren't we like that with the Lord? Of course we are. We do not ask sufficiently. He likes to hear us ask for things. He really does. And so he therefore makes things dependent upon prayer. Just so he has the pleasure of hearing from his own beloved children asking for things. And of course we know it is an expression of faith and love, isn't it? When you ask for someone, of course it's a faith that you believe in them in the first place. You believe they can do something But it's an expression both of faith and of love to ask people for something. There's sometimes a false humility that we have with other people. Sometimes people ask as as if their main concern was for the other person. They don't want to bother them or trouble them. But actually it's their own pride. They want to be self-sufficient. They don't want to ever be dependent on anyone else. And therefore in their pride they refuse to ask. Well, God is not impressed by that. We, we have that example, don't we, in Isaiah, we, not, not so long ago, we were reminded of that, that, uh, the wicked king. And um, the prophet says, ask of me of a sign now. And the response was, I'm not going to ask the Lord of a sign. I'm too holy and too, too reserved for that. It was not, it, the Lord was not impressed by that. He tells us, ask. He tells us to pray. And we should do that. And I'd say also that God is glorified by giving people this particular role as intercessors. You know, a particular role, then uh, for him it is, is more glorified. He is glorified in that people ask him to do these things for him. There is a glory that comes from it. I, I guess the idea that came, comes to my mind is some hulking but friendly giant playing with children. And, you know, it would be one thing if he just he was alone and he just 
looked around and picked up some rock, and, you know, giant, giant stone and, and uh, threw, threw it a long distance. Um, it, it's quite another if the children ask him, Mr. Giant, can you pick up this big stone and throw it? And he delights to do it. They even beg him to do it, these children, and he, he gladly does it. And the effect you see is magnified when you see the giant do something like that, some great feat at the behest of the little children asking him. Well, that's, I think, in some sense, the way that God does things. We never draw a straight line between an illustration and the truth itself. But we know that God is infinitely strong. We know that we truly are weak. We know that we are his children, so that aspect of it is true. And we know that he delights to answer the prayers of his people. And you go through the list of what it is that we are commanded to pray for, what it is that we are encouraged to pray for, what it is that he says that you must pray for in order for these things to happen. There isn't much, isn't much left, actually. There isn't much except maybe the, the mere upholding of the universe from moment to moment. I haven't found the place where we're commanded or encouraged to pray that God uphold the universe from moment to moment. But apart from that, I don't say that we shouldn't pray for that, but apart from that... There is nothing that we are not commanded to pray for. All of the work, everything, our daily bread, we're commanded to pray for it. Our ongoing providence and and health and and sustenance, for us to remain in the church, for others to be brought into it, for uh, our building up in the faith, our sanctification, you name it. Every one of those things are things that we are explicitly commanded to pray for. And... If it's going to be done, it will need to be prayed for. God has appointed our prayers as much as anything else as the means of these things being done. And then, of course, we have the bare command to pray. And of that, we have no doubt whatsoever. He looks at, this, he looks at the situation, harvest. Now, others don't see it. They, the disciples, they don't quite see the harvest, but he looks out and he sees the harvest and he says it's great. His estimation of it is huge. And then he looks at the, the number. Now, before he only had 12. Now he has 70. And he looks at them and he still says, the workers are few. And the response to that is, pray. Pray. So our application, of course, begins with pray. That is first. That is foremost. That is fundamental. This is the requisite thing. And specifically to pray that the Lord would send out workers that is part of our, that should be in our daily lists. You know, there are some things that are more according to the situation. There are some things that come and go. But there are other things that need to be fundamental. And this is one of them, that you pray that the Lord would send out workers into the harvest. And from my perspective, could I only ask that we commit ourselves, in fact, to do that precise thing. Over, let's just say the next year, let's all commit to praying daily that the Lord would send out workers into the harvest and see what might happen. Because I don't think that we have actually come to the depth of asking for everything that the Lord could possibly give us. And I say maybe we can take another, another step into the unknown of asking for a little bit more. Let's all commit to praying every day that the Lord would send out workers into the harvest, which he says is enormous. Well, secondly, I want us to know and understand that the harvest workers are appointed by God. 
There's lots and lots of things to be said on this point. But all I want is to really understand that there's a middle course for us to, to go through. We've got to steer a middle course between two rocks. On the one hand, we have medieval Roman Catholic clericalism and this very hard, sacred, secular divide in which the only thing worth doing was to join a religious order, to become a monk or a nun. And it denigrated Now, funny enough, it it somehow did two things at the same time. Both it denigrated the lives of ordinary Christians, and it also compromised and ended up destroying the mission of the church at the same time. It it probably didn't set out to do those things, but it did. Because this isn't the way God decided to do it. He didn't say that. They just made it up, and they ended up destroying both parts of it at the same time. Now, today, we have the opposite extreme. We have another rock on this side. And church is influenced by what I call missional theology. They have this idea of every member ministry. And if it were merely just the idea that everyone, all, everybody in the church should be serving one another, that's good. Uh, we, we know from Corinthians that every one of us have a part to play in the church of God and we ought to be doing it. And I want us to be doing it more, Absolutely. And if it was merely to say that we all have some role to play in the Great Commission, I'm all for it because that's true as well. Both as cinders and also in our own private and individual lives as those who bear that message. Absolutely. The problem is, of course, they go beyond that. It goes into this idea that there's no real difference between the vocational ordained ministry and everyone else. It denigrates the concept of the ordained ministry and in the process ends up doing both of those things. Not only does it denigrate the ministry, it ends up destroying the mission of the church. Because if you say everything is mission, then nothing is mission. If you say everyone's a minister, then no one's a minister. They don't set out to do these things. It just happens because that's not the way God designed it to work. We have to steer a middle course between them in which we understand that there is such a thing as an ordained ministry. There are those who are specifically ordained to, in their full-time work all the day, to, they're called to do something as their business every day and to bring in this harvest. And, and I'll say, if God is sending you into the harvest, then you need to go. Don't be like a Jonah. But do keep in mind that they are specifically appointed by God. He calls us, He called us 12, He called us 70. And he appointed them. And the church knows it. There is a most visible setting aside to that. That is where we get the idea of ordination of the church. Appointing and sending out those to do that work. The harvest workers are appointed by God. Thirdly, the senders are also appointed by God. It says in verse 4, Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. Why? How can he say this? I thought he cared about these people. Shouldn't he say, pack this, pack the other? We certainly did that in the military. If I was sending them out to go somewhere, I'd give them a packing list because I didn't want them to starve. Why is Jesus sending his people out with nothing? Because he also appoints those who are going to support them. He is just as able to provide for himself those who are going to support as those who are going to do the work itself. And so in verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. You know what that means? It means that the appointment, it is every true believer has a share in that. Every true believer is appointed to that work of sending. 
Every Christian, every, this son of peace, every one of maybe those who themselves have not been sent out as a dedicated worker, every one of them, they are a son of peace, eligible then to support those who are called to do the full-time work. Now, this is a sacrificial business. There's going to be sacrifice. There's going to be food. There's going to be resources. There's going to be money that is set aside that you'd otherwise use for your own purposes. Instead, it's going to the kingdom of God. But I want you to know it's certainly an investment as well. You expect to receive something back from it. You know, again, as interest rates as they are, there's not those who have money to invest. There isn't much to be had for it. And I say that because the deacons have been considering what to to do with uh, some of our savings, and there isn't much. But, you know, if there was a situation in which you'd expect to receive a return, well, then you would probably be willing to go after it. Well, what I'm saying is that the Lord is very specifically saying it's not just that you're going to get a little reward from it, it's that you won't really receive much reward from anything else, and you'll receive an enormous reward for this. And I'll just read you from Matthew 6, because I want you to see that the Lord is not squeamish about this, this idea. He, he really, he's not saying, only and just and merely because you love me, you're going to give sacrificially, and let's not even talk about some sort of return on your investment. He, it's not like that at all. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And some would be tempted to stop right there. Okay, Jesus doesn't want us to lay up treasures at all. That's completely and absolutely wrong in the most categorical sense. No. He actually goes on to say, lay up for yourself treasures. But lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. The thing is, the the idea was correct. It's a good idea to lay up treasures. You've got the location all wrong. You are laying up treasures in Nigeria. You ought to be laying them up in Switzerland. If you lay them up in, 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 in a war-torn area, in, in which is, or let, let's say, Somalia, let's say, better yet, let's say, Syria, you're laying up treasures in Syria, some, some place that's about to be overtaken by ISIS. And when you get there, 20 years from now, there'll be absolutely nothing there. It'll all be gone. The Lord says, no, I want you to lay up treasures. Lay them up in Switzerland, in a vault, where no war is going to reach them, no thief is ever going to touch them. And the location of that Switzerland is, of course, in heaven. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And you've got to turn your earthly treasure in some way. You've got to to cachet it in order that it might be treasure in heaven. Now, the subject of precisely how is is another day, but the idea is for you, as you think of yourself as a sender of this this great harvest enterprise, you share in it. All you're doing, you are hiring. You may not be a worker yourself. You say, I'm not a worker. Great. Go hire yourself a worker. And you can do that as you give to this church, for instance. You are hiring workers to be sent out, and you will receive treasures in heaven. Well, fourthly, we ought to prepare for the day of harvest. Of course, we've got to do that. Of course, we've got to do that. Because the whole point of the, what is being going on, this is now the process of harvest. That, that Back then, as I said, there's a whole year. And so much of it was spent in other things happening. And the amount of time spent on the harvest was relatively brief. 
It was a small percentage of that whole time spent on the crop. Here's the harvest time. And then at the end of it, there is an end to that harvest. It will come to an end. And the question is, where are you going to be when that happens? You know, Matthew 13, 37, he answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one, Satan. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. Son of man will send out his angels. And what are they going to do? You know, we, we have this cuddly picture of angels at this time. A false picture of them, I think. And they will gather out of his kingdom all that offend and those who practice lawlessness. And they will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Brothers and sisters, that is coming. That day of harvest will come. And there will be a reaping. And they will be, people will be sent to their eternal destiny. And the question is, where will you be on that day? Will you be brought into the barn as a precious seed, as a precious grain that the Lord Jesus Christ spilt his blood for and has very carefully nurtured and brought to the point of harvest? Or you be a tear, or the angels gather you into the, and throw you into the furnace. You need to prepare for that day of harvest because it is coming. There's a moment, as it says in Revelation 14, when the harvest of the earth will be ripe. And the angels be sent and they'll put in their sickle. And the earth will be reaped. We ought to prepare for that day. Now... Of course, you understand that preparing for that day means putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the whole point of everything that is said here. He says, I'm going to send you. He's sending these people before his face because he himself is going to go there. And what the word that is given to them is that the kingdom of God has come near you. And for some of you, the kingdom of God has come near you. The word of God that says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is presented to you. And you're hesitant to put your faith in Christ. I would say, would your mind be changed? If you could actually look up into the sky and see angels coming with sighs in their hands to reap this world and to bring you to your everlasting destiny, would you be so reticent to put your faith in him at that point? You would say not. And I say you don't know when that time is. As far as for all we know, it is true. For all we know, in fact, that is our situation. It is but a momentary wait until the harvest comes. The only safe and the only right thing to do is to put your faith in Christ, to believe, to trust in him apart from your own righteousness, to believe in Christ and be saved. That's surely how we prepare for the day of harvest. One last and final application, which is that we ought to have the attitude of a harvester We ought to have an attitude of a harvester. And I I preach this to myself more than to anyone else. John 4.35, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes a harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. That's what Jesus says. Again, he's telling his disciples, who are a little bit slow-witted, frankly, 
He's, they're not quick with their eyes, not quick with their minds. And he's saying to them, lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. You wouldn't have known that before because you're, you're looking down here and that you don't notice how wonderful that harvest is and how ripe it is. He says, lift up your eyes to see them. And Jesus says that to us. You need to have the attitude of a harvester, of one who there is a great harvest before, and you're going and you're getting as much as you can. And again, I preach this to myself as much more than to anyone else. Because the question is, do you expect people to be brought in? Do you expect in your prayer, do you pray expectantly that those are going to come in? We understand that the Lord is sovereign. We understand that not everyone we pray for will be saved. But sometimes... Sometimes it's possible to pray as if you didn't expect anyone to be saved. I have said I'm guilty of that. I ask you, are you also guilty of that? Do we know what it is like to pray expectantly? To speak to people expectantly? I pray that the Lord would enable us to have that wonderful experience in his mercy. And that we, as a whole church... As we share in this work, we would yet see a great harvest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you are the Lord of the harvest. What a wonderful thing it is to consider you to be the Lord of the harvest. This is your work. These are your fields. And this will be all to your glory when all is said and done. And we know, Lord, that that harvest will be complete. There will be none missing in its number. And there will be no flaw, no imperfection in its quality. It will be perfect. And it will be great in every sense. And we worship you in this greatness and magnificence of the harvest. And we also acknowledge that you are an authority over it. You are the Lord of this harvest. You get to tell us what to do. You get to determine the part that we play in it. You get to determine the methods by which we go about this work. And Lord, how we pray that we would be obedient. And Lord, as we consider this word, this concept of a harvest, we know that the final, the completion of this harvest is near upon us. Christ is coming soon, you have told us. And we should be expectant. We pray, Lord, that we would think expectantly. And that those who have not yet put their faith in Christ would do so. That they would cry out to the Lord. That they would believe on him. We forsake all their own self-righteousness, forsake all their own sense of merit and put their faith in his finished work on the cross. And how we pray, Lord, that you'd enable us to both pray and to do, to do the work expectantly, believing that you will bring in a great harvest. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.